You are listening to the message by Antioch Center for the Nations. For more information, please visit www.antiochcenterforthenations.org. Thank you. And I have a message I want to share with you tonight. Uh, recently, as we've been going through the one-year Bible, I usually stay close to the the chapters that we're covering, the things that we're reading. So if you want to join me, we're going to actually go to um, Mark chapter 3, which we've been seeing in our, our um, Bibles this past, in fact today, and we've been making our way into Mark, Mark chapter 1, chapter 2, now chapter 3, and uh, it's very important that we see, and what caught my eye about the third chapter of Mark is that the whole chapter is full of the same thing in repetition, and that is, because uh, I read it as an overview, and I said, there seems to be a trend here that throughout this chapter, Jesus is dealing with problematic people. He's dealing with issues with people that are, in fact, against him, enemies, if you would. And now we know already from the beginning that it is our obligation to love our enemies. Jesus told us that. But I want to start an introduction looking at Mark chapter 9 and verse 38. It says, Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. So here Jesus is speaking to the disciples who have done something in error. They found someone that was not a part of their group. This was not someone that should be treated as an enemy, but they treated them as such, someone that they thought were was violating some type of, uh, of um, union rules or something. I don't know that he would not be eligible or was not, he did not have the authority to do what he did. So anyway, Jesus says something important in response about what an enemy is and what a friend is, and he makes it very clear. An enemy, in basic definition, is a person who is actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. That's, a, that's the dictionary definition of the word. It is someone who is actively opposed to someone or something, meaning they are taking action against you. They are working against you to do you harm. That's an enemy. Now, there are people who are indifferent. There are people who may not support you the way you want to be supported. They may not say exactly what you want them to say. They may give you a smirk. They may give you a funny look. Uh, they may not be what you want them to be. But we cannot categorize that as an enemy. You may run across people like the disciples and decide, well, those people are different. They're doing things different. They're acting different. Well, that's not an enemy because Jesus defines it very clearly that even though the disciple says he was not one of us, and you see that partisan thought. Uh, we see the element of the disciples' mentality concerning people that Jesus was seeking to eliminate. He was looking to eliminate that mentality in them, and he was constantly working in them concerning how they treated the people around them. So we know by definition, enemy is someone against you. Now, it just so happens that the whole third chapter of Mark is people against Jesus. And things that they're doing. In fact, later we're going to see these things. But in introduction also, I want to talk about this, looking for a reason to accuse. Because the chapter starts, this is the introduction to the chapter, chapter 3, verse 1. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Have you ever had someone looking for a reason to accuse you? Trying to find something, remember Daniel in, in the group of the satraps and the leaders and all the, all the wise men of the land of Babylon, Daniel was very successful, but they hated him, so they began to look for some way to accuse him, but he was so perfect in everything they could not find anything. And this is what enemies do. This again is active opposition. This is someone coming to stop you from being blessed, to stop you from having happiness or joy, working 
against you. Now, in this particular uh, case here, we see these people were there specifically looking for a reason to accuse you. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. In other words, the trap that they set was a, a sabbatical trap. It was a, will he do this on the Sabbath trap, which they often put out there for Jesus. Because their observation of the Sabbath was a bit extreme because it had more to do with the tradition of the elders than it did with the actual law. And that's why Jesus even remedied that and said, well, you know what, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And I'm telling you, I'm the guy that wrote the rule, and you've misunderstood the rule. And he explains that, but we're not getting into that right now. But those opposed to Jesus and his ministry were looking for this reason. This is pretty much how we can recognize an enemy. If somebody in your life, for whatever reason, even if you cannot define that reason or understand that reason, they just don't like you. How many of you have people like that in your life? It happens. They just don't like you. I have uh, quite a few people in my life that just don't like me. I do not know why. It is a mystery to me because I've never met someone as wonderful as me. And of course, everyone should love me. I don't understand why everyone would not love me. Of course, I'm being ridiculous in saying that. Surely there's things about all of us that other people will not like. But there are a lot of reasons why people were against Jesus. The primary reason was jealousy, because they were jealous of Jesus. And Jesus was performing and doing things that they, nor their ancestors or the ancestors before those ancestors, were ever able to do. Jesus brought a perfection as Messiah to the religious world, to the world itself, and that really angered them. So that caused them to strike against him. So the number one motive for an enemy is usually jealousy. They want to stop you from being you. They want to stop you. If you're happy, they want to stop that. I've talked about religious environments in which I've worked where it's common within religious or religiosity that people will oppose one another, fight against one another. Even members of the same church will fight against each other to try to bring each other down. So that means you will find enemies there. Jesus actually names enemies in many different realms. For instance, in your own home. He says your enemies will be those of your own home. That mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, etc. And son against father, father against son, even to the point that they will have each other arrested. All these issues happen when God is working in our lives. So enemies are a fact of life. We're going to find them. And Jesus had more enemies than any of us. Jesus was rich in every regard, including in enemies. He, he had an abundance of enemies. It got so bad. He had so many enemies. He had to constantly hide. He had to constantly escape from them. He had to remove himself. He had to, he could no longer even go to city centers because of the enemies that rose against him. For what? For healing? For deliverance? For raising the dead, for multiplying the loaves and the fish, for making a thousand bottles of wine. I know some religious people that might get angry at that. But he did a lot of things that upset people, and he was not doing anything against them. He never did anything against anyone till they struck against him, and then he would speak back to them. So in this whole chapter, I analyzed this today, and I found some interesting things. Really, I did want to say that uh, friendship is being an ally, not an enemy. A friend is not going to be against you. A friend is not going to work. If you have friends that are working against you, by definition, that's not a friend. Now, that does not mean you cannot love them because, as I said a moment ago, Jesus said, love your enemies and do good to them. Bless those that curse you and bless those that, that want evil done to you. So your enemy is someone that you should deal with first in love. But Jesus in this chapter demonstrates for us seven ways that he dealt with enemies. And we can use these methods of dealing with the enemies in our life by doing these things that Jesus did. We're going to learn about how to properly deal with enemies. First of all, I asked how many of you, I asked a moment ago, I just want to see about you, how many of you have enemies in your life? Pretty much anybody. Right. Except for Alicia. Alicia has no enemies 
at all. And I can understand why. Look how beautiful she is. But there is some, don't worry, if you don't right now, they're coming. There's enemies on the way. There always is. Especially, I find, the more active you become in kingdom work, absolutely. And if you want to know why Jesus had so many enemies, it's because he was so active doing the Father's will. And that's one thing absolutely I've seen through the years that will produce an abundance of enemies if you are focused on God's purposes, if you're focused on fulfilling his will for your life, all of the enemies of hell are going to be released and come after you like hounds hunting a coon in the forest. That's a very American reference. Seven ways Jesus dealt with enemies. And let's pray. Father, help us tonight. Uh, all of us who have enemies, you have given us a very difficult task when you said love them. Uh, we need to know how to deal with this. It's not easy. Many of us in this room, including myself, have failed when it comes to dealing properly with the enemy. And I want to get it right. In fact, I want everything in my life to be right, Lord. I want to please you. I want to live a life not just righteous because you said so, but righteous by my choices. I want to make good choices. And therefore, I must base those choices upon your word in both word and deed. You said things and you lived things. I'm going to look at the things that you lived in relating to these enemies and copy them, Lord. Help us to learn from this tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we begin, begin with the first one. And now we see these people looking to accuse him. He dealt with them, number one, by intelligent demonstration. Now, I heard someone once say that the, best, the, the worst thing you can do to an enemy is live a happy life. If you can just be happy and have a smile on your face, you're, it will burn your enemy up. Because that is exactly what they want to take away from you. And if you're easily upset by enemies, then they've won. So this is part of it, is we're learning how not to allow people to upset us. There are times, however, by intelligent demonstration, Jesus, when faced with these accusers or his enemies, he decided that the first way that he could deal with them in this is to do this. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. So he made a show out of it. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. So here from the very beginning, these people are looking for some reason to accuse him. Jesus, Jesus generously provides that reason based upon their doctrines, not truth. So he knows that they are going to come against him if he does anything, but he is using it as a moment to intelligently expose the darkness of their hearts. That's why when he challenges them with these words, they remain silent. And this is one of the smoking gun sayings of Jesus, I call them. Uh, it's like the old spaghetti western in the street, and they and they shoot, and the other guy's dead, and you just see the smoke coming out at the end of the gun. He's such a good shot. Jesus was an expert marksman with words. It's things like, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God. They knew, don't, man, don't. I'm sure it got to the point where a Pharisee was heading with another Pharisee. I'm going to straighten that Jesus out. Man, you don't want to do that. No, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. I'm telling you. You don't, you don't want to do that. He's going to take you down. So after a while, Jesus got that reputation. But he proves this. He demonstrates to them. And I said that the best way to start to deal with your enemies is to be happy in your life and just live it in front of them. If you do things that are good, you do things that are blessed. It's not a jet trying to land in the back. It's the wind rushing through that hole. If you do things that are blessed and you live a blessed life and you're happy and you have a smile on your face... That's the worst thing in the world that the enemy would ever want to see. And so that, in a way, is, is you living with your whole heart kindly and demonstrating to them that they're not getting to you. And so that's where it all starts. Don't let someone's threats, don't let 
someone's accusations nor the fact that they are setting traps for you ever cause you to pull back from being who you are in Christ. And that is something the enemy does. The threat itself will cause people to not be free. There's ways that you can be free and live your life and be a Christian with your whole heart. Sure, the enemy is going to get angry, but just live it in front of them. Do the things that God's called you to do right in front of them, and they will go insane. They'll get mad at you, but it is a way that you begin. How do you deal with them? Jesus starts with this very thing. And so when you insist on doing the right thing and being happy, uh, you silence the enemy. Let's go to the second one. By withdrawing from threats. Now, this is important to understand. And I, a long time ago when I lived in countries where my, my life was in danger, in Singapore, it's, it's not like that. And it's all this time I've been in Singapore, I feel very comfortable. However, when I do go to other nations outside of Singapore, I become aware again. My spidey senses tingle like they don't tingle in Singapore. And I kind of, to me, it's like an old pair of shoes I just haven't worn in a while. So when I go back into those forward areas and third world countries and in certain environments and on certain dark streets at certain hours, I, those spidey senses come up and I know, be careful. And I learned by uh, this axiom that I had, this phrase I would always say uh, on the mission field was, he who learns to run away lives to preach another day. And this is the thing is I found out about a lot of martyrdom is because people did things that were not exactly wise. And you say, well, we just need to stand up and count it all joy and suffer the tribulation and let, well, okay, but Jesus didn't. Jesus paced himself, and in this story, we see as it continues, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. It's kind of like when you're playing chess, and you advance a piece. You maybe slide your bishop over in a certain position. And then someone moves their knight, and you know they're going to take your bishop. So what do you do? You withdraw. It's just strategic brinksmanship, carefully knowing how to live your life in a way that will preserve you for a longer term. And that's exactly why Jesus said, this is not cowardice. How many of you would dare call Jesus a coward? He was by no means a coward. But Jesus withdrew. In fact, we see him constantly withdrawing. We see him constantly evading the enemy. And this is important. When threatened, even with murder, Jesus withdrew from the people who wanted to kill him. And this is perfectly acceptable. It's a measure that is acceptable in dealing with the enemy. And that's why we look at Jesus and think, if somebody is threatening you to the point where they would like to see you dead, how about not hang out around those people? How about no longer associate with said people? And this is an extreme, but of course we can look at it metaphorically too. People hate you a lot. Maybe just don't get around those people. Maybe withdraw from them. Maybe uh, get a different social setting. Now it's hard if you work in an office and it's the guy in a cubicle across from you or a man at a desk on your right or your, or your left hand, then it's a different issue. You can't exactly run out of the office. So maybe you can use some of these other techniques that we're looking at. But this one is a pretty big one. The first one is just be happy. Demonstrate the Christian life and the power of the Spirit in your life in front of everybody. One of those ways is brain for your food. Do you ever see people get angry when you bless your food? They do sometimes. I bless it anyway. Just bless my food in Jesus' name. I don't mind saying it out loud. I'm so grateful to the Lord. People do not always like that. People shy away from that and sometimes think, well, you know, we don't want to be a disturbance to them. I don't know. I think it's a good thing to give thanks for food and I do so. It's just me. You don't have to do it. I'm not telling you as a doctrine if you don't pray out loud for all your food, you're going to hell. I'm just saying that it is a way that I live that first one. But the second one is if you know you're going to pray in front of a certain person and they're going to stab you with a fork as a result, maybe you should eat somewhere else. You know what I mean? Maybe you should choose a different table or maybe even a different restaurant. Uh, recently, I went to a very interesting restaurant. 
full of my enemies, full of people, and hear me carefully, full of people who have been taught their whole life that I am Satan and I am evil. I, this actually happened this past week. I went to a restaurant and was surrounded with people that from the time they were born were taught that I am public enemy number one and the only good version of me is dead. You're like, where did you go? I went to a North Korean restaurant in Cambodia. And I met for the first time North Koreans. It was a great experience, first of all, because they came to the table, very Korean, very polite, beautiful young women, obviously the best of the best, most beautiful women as propaganda offerings to the world. Look at how we are. And, and some say that he's actually children of the elite that are allowed to leave the country and work. And they have 12 of these restaurants around the world, only in communist countries. And so, of course, you couldn't do that here in Singapore. It wouldn't be in America. You're not going to see that in the UK or in Australia. But Cambodia is still a communist. It's still a, a kingdom. And the communism is a part of their belief system. So I fascinatingly went there. She comes over to the table and says, hello, where are you from? And I said, I'm from America. And she said, USA. Just like that. I'm not exaggerating. Mm -hmm. And she turned to the other waitress and said, he's from USA. And she said, USA. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating. So what do you do in that moment? Well, I have the opportunity then. I smiled and I said, you know what? I want you to know that I love North Koreans because I absolutely do. I love all of the people on earth. They need Jesus. I said, I love North Koreans and I'm praying for your country. She looked funny and she said, I too am praying for my country. And I said to her more, I said, not all Americans are alike. She said, it's really, she got a little more on. She said, it's really not Americans that I dislike. It's American politics that I dislike. And I said, well, you know what? There's a lot of politics in America that this American doesn't like. I said, there are differences of opinion. And, and they warmed up more. The food was great. The entertainment was insanely talented. Because these people train their whole lives from the time of a fetus. They're being trained in the womb to do those dances. By the time they get to this age, in their 20s, these they did things on accordions and um, uh, the piano guitar things, you know, the keyboard, uh, the guitars they call them, and on drums. This girl played drums like Buddy Rich. I mean, you, you incredible. You realize at, 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 the, at one point I'm clapping and thinking, that's amazing. And the other point I'm, th I'm crying a tear because I realize they are subject to that. They have no choice. They have to perform. They have to do that. But it's an interesting experience. And there might be some people that could say or maybe someone watching online, well, you know, how dare you go to that? Well, you know, whatever opportunity would I ever have to greet and actually meet someone from North Korea and let them know that I love them. There's nothing wrong with doing that. And if you ever go into Cambodia to Phnom Penh, I recommend you check that out. It is surreal. It's like going to another planet. It's like nothing. If you've ever seen propaganda footage out of North Korea where they represent the nation, that it's like living in that film. It's like you go into that film and experience and the faces and the smiles and the, it's a little weird sometimes. But So anyway, yeah, I have a choice. I don't have to be there. In that particular case, they weren't going to kill me. Uh, they maybe would, would like to eradicate all Americans, but maybe I had an opportunity to shine uh, the kindness from someone that does not hate them. I do not hate them like they were taught at all. So anyway, by withdrawing from threats, we see that Jesus does this. Jesus withdrew with his disciples when they heard about all he was doing. Many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. These people who heard and went to him, these are not enemies. These are people not against him, but are for him. So we see a pattern here. When we withdraw to a certain place, the people 
who are supposed to be connected to us will come to us. They will polarize to us and God will build relationships. There's nothing wrong with you removing yourself from the realm of the enemy. So when a threat arises from the enemy, we often think that we should fight and stand up against that threat. And sometimes the best course of action is to flee. As I say, he who learns to run away lives to preach another day. And note that the people of God connected with them after this. Now I ask you a question about Jesus. Uh, did Jesus have to run away from the enemy? Did he have to? Did he have no choice? No, of course he had a choice. He says, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? And that's approximately 60,000 angels, by the way. If one angel conquered an entire army of Assyrians, what are 60,000 going to do? And Jesus is saying he had the wherewithal to call on that and it would be there to defend him. So that means that Jesus was constantly choosing not to do something, not to fight, not to be against his enemies. Not only did he teach love your enemies, he demonstrated it, he lived it, and he used wisdom in preserving himself. So running away is not an expression of cowardice, but an expression of meekness and wisdom. Remember, meekness is strength under control. Jesus had that strength of 60,000 angels at his side within a moment. He didn't use it. It's more like Philippians chapter 2. He did not see his divinity as a thing to be grasped. He left that all behind and he lived a normal life. But I believe there were moments he did use just enough of that power to not end his life too quickly. Like when he started his ministry and they wanted to throw him off the cliff. And it says he just walked right in between them. How did he do that? I kind of pictured that there was power there that caused him not to be able to do something. I kind of like the power that was here that caused my poor friend Rusty to not be able to preach. He was here, and, and how many of you were here in the meeting? He just couldn't. Later we talked about it, and he said that, I don't know what happened. The man I called, I said, don't worry about it. God took over and did what God wanted to do. And that's all that matters. And he spoke some very encouraging words and he was a blessing, but he was embarrassed later. And I said, don't be embarrassed. I said, I've seen it happen to many, many people in the presence of God. I've seen it happen to great preachers, really powerful preachers, just get stymied and stifled and then stutter and don't know what to say. Because that's when God's glory has a different plan. So I say, yield to God. And I knew it was prophecy. So I said, just do, just do what you do, man. Prophesy. Just let's move into that realm. And he did. It was a really great, great time. And I know that uh, many of you were encouraged. Also, I will always remind you when it comes to prophecy, that is between you and God, what you feel about what you're told. If a word is given to you, you are responsible to, to judge that by God's word, to think about it. If something is ever told you don't quite understand, just put it on, we say, put it on a shelf and then wait for more clarity about that. So, and you have to be, now I've had opportunities actually uh, where God has afforded me um, an opportunity to strike back at enemies. I had a case years ago where we, we, in fact, were cheated of a lot of things and things were taken from us in ministry, many thousands of dollars and all, all this equipment and everything. And I had an opportunity where a friend of mine came and told me that he, and it was in a country where we were working, he told me that he had military friends high in the, in the military and that that military friend of his, who was a general, offered to him uh, to to help me and all I had to do and the way my friend presented it to me is he put an imaginary button on the table came to meet me and he says see this button he says you push this button and we will deal with this situation and he meant milit he said military guard armed will go in military trucks and and extradite those people and send them out of the country and give me every single thing that was taken. I had that was offered to me. And what did I do? Of course I didn't take him up on it. It felt good though, honestly. It showed that my father knew exactly what was going on and that he could do whatever was necessary. But there's moments when God's going to test you like that. 
What will you do? Will you be like Jesus? Or will you call fire down? And that's exactly what the disciples wanted to do, but I did not. I passed the test, honestly. I said, no, not. And it, it, to make it worse, he got up and he walked away and he came back and he went back to that imaginary button and again. He, says, he said, I'm going to leave this right here. And anytime you want to push that button, just call me. And of course I didn't. And uh, it's just sad that things happen in life, but don't ever look to find revenge. This is exactly what Jesus was not seeking, not revenge. And so we have opportunities, but be careful. Now, next, Jesus dealt with enemies by compartmentalizing people in his life. In other words, categorizing groups of people and putting people where they belong. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. I'm sure you've all seen sporting events uh, where people have been crushed to death. And imagine how much more in a moment where whatever sickness or disease you have can be healed if you just touch this guy. Uh, you will not hesitate to kill someone in the process if you are in enough pain and have suffered enough so the crowds could get and did get out of hand. And so Jesus had to be careful about how he related. Now, this is not an intentional enemy, but this is what happens. Sometimes in life, things will fight against you, and it was not the plan, but he had these people. And so whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you're the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. The reason he was telling them not to tell anyone is because he was trying to keep this under wraps because the fame was working against him. He was being glorified. And the acts that he did were glorifying him. And the Father is being glorified through him because he gave all credit to the Father. So that was successful, but it was problematic. So he had to compartmentalize, put people in categories in his life. Have a boat is kind of, to me, demonstrative of a compartment uh, in relationships. You can think, who do you let in your boat? Who do you let in your inner circle? And Jesus did exactly this. Jesus decided to separate himself and people whom he chose into categories. This compartmentalization of people was extremely important to maintain his sanity and his physical safety because he was in danger at this point. He could wisely continue his ministry as long as he had these boundaries set up. And you need to do that. Be careful who you get close to. Be careful who you have if you want to maintain order. And here Jesus shows us clearly that we need to group people in life into categories in order to protect ourselves from the threats and accidents that can occur in relating with people. You understand what I mean? In relationships, uh, harm can come to you accidentally. Simply by differing personalities, cultural backgrounds, they don't know that they're hurting you, they might hurt you. They don't know that they're offensive, but they will be. And so in order for you to keep yourself from becoming bitter and angry and hostile toward everybody and paranoia, you have to carefully um, separate yourself in, in the people in your life into groupings. The best analogy I ever heard from a pastor was think of it as a home. You've heard me use this analogy before. Uh, you do not let the mailman take a nap on your bed. The mailman, you know him and associate with him, but he is left on the doorstep. Uh, and in America, it's very common. You have the same mailman all the time. You grew, I grew up with one mailman my whole life in my neighborhood, and we all knew him. He was a really cool guy. He'd put his bag down and play football with us in the front lawn. He was a really nice mailman, and we loved his truck. He would let us, this is before all the liability issues, he'd let us ride on the back of the truck and he'd take the mail truck down the street and we, it was cool because his steering wheel was on the wrong side. And But this guy was really a nice guy, but we did not have him come sleep on our beds. And so there are other people that you let into your living room, but no further. And there are people, your best friend, maybe you don't mind. Yeah, go take a nap on my bed. 
Uh, maybe you lay next to them and take a nap on the bed. I don't know. You know, sometimes women will have girlfriends and they're more affectionate like that. Well, that's very intimate. I don't recommend that a boy has his girlfriends taking naps with him in the bed. Of course, that could get out of hand. But my point is, in life, you do not let everybody into the inside. You say, well, did Jesus did that? Yeah, he did. And we're going to cover that next. But I want to recommend a book to you that really touched my life. Uh, I read this uh, 35 years ago. This book was published in 1985. It's still in print, and it in fact is free online. If you go to this, it's, a, it's an online library, it's called. You, I set up an account today, very simply, and you can check out the book. It's in an encrypted file. You can't download it, but you can view it in a browser. And it, it's not a PDF in the such that you can download it and keep it, but you can look at it in a browser as if you've checked it out. And that entire book is there called Ordering Your Private World. Brilliant man, this man Gordon McDonald. He wrote this book. Absolutely loved it. I think outside of the Bible, this book affected me more than any other book on earth. The Bible first always, but second place, in a distant second place, mind you, was this book. Really, really interesting. And a lot of the principles by which I live today, I saw in this book where this man took scriptures and talked about the very things I'm telling you about Jesus and the way that he ordered his private world so that he could maintain his ministry, his life, his sanity. Very important. We go to the next one and we see that Jesus dealt with his enemies by designating friends. Designating friends. In other words, naming certain people friends and not naming everyone friends. And that word friend is thrown around loosely these days. Uh, if you have a Facebook account, you might have 5,000 friends. Uh, those are not really friends. That's just a name on Facebook. Because believe me, a lot of them are your enemies. You don't know it. And they're looking for any comment that you can say to, to strike out and attack you as we have probably all been in online arguments. How many of you ever had an online argument in comment sections? It can get pretty nasty, can it? I, how many of you have ever blocked people because of it? I'm going to raise my hand high. I have blocked people because comments I did not like. And they were just not, they were nasty. They were comments that enemies would Make And so I withdrew them from the access of my Facebook. I have a right to do that. Otherwise, they're saying rubbish and crazy things, and I don't want that because a lot of people are reading the comments on my Facebook, and so I have to moderate that. Well, think of that as an analogy of life. You have to moderate your life and what people are saying and what, how they're influencing you. And you designate friends. It says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he Wanted. Wow, that's interesting. That alone, we see Jesus wanted some people and did not want other people. I'm sorry to tell you that there are people that Jesus didn't want. Because if it were not true, it wouldn't say it. We got him. It says, those he wanted. That means there were a whole lot of people in that crowd that Jesus could say, I don't want you. And sometimes you are going to have to say such things. I've had people come to me and literally say, I want you to be my daddy. You know, like the really extreme things. And I'm okay in some regards to be like a father, but that is a heavy trip to lay on me. I want you to be my daddy. You know, it's scary, first of all. And I, I, I don't mind if you've ever told me that it's okay uh, I choose who I'm going to father, and I, I've basically chosen three, uh, my sons and my daughter, and I'm primarily going to father. I can be as a father in some regards, but that's a very heavy thing. You can't just be everybody's daddy. Even Paul said, you have many teachers, but not many fathers. And so I have to be very careful about that. There are some people I want and some people I don't want. Because I know without a doubt, if I include them in my life, they will damage me. And eventually they will turn on me. I can tell the people who will turn on me. 
And so I'm best to keep them and designate others as my friends. In fact, they, they came to him. Luke 6.12 says, and it says that he spent the night praying to God. Now, it does not say it in Mark. That's why I put the excerpt there from Luke in the same story. Jesus spent the whole night praying to the Father. About what? About designating friends. He was so careful about this. He was so cautious. And if Jesus had to spend the whole night to make these choices, how much more do we with, with our infantile discernment compared to him, we should take maybe a year to really think about, do we want these people in our life? So he appointed 12 that they might be with him and then he might send them out to preach. First was that they be with him. Who do you want with you? Who do you think is a good question, right? Who do you want really what I mean by with you is you sitting down on the couch and there's someone sitting next to you. You don't want a lot of people to follow you home and at night when you're in your pajamas, sit next to you. Who would you let do that? Very few people, right? Well, you're not crazy. You're right. Because you don't want everybody. I don't meet the uncle at the Kopitiam and take him home to sit on the couch with me and play Xbox. You know... <laughs> So Jesus is choosing people. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. So you're going to have to appoint people. You have to appoint them. And I have news for you. There may be some people you decide you want to appoint that do not want you to appoint them. And so that's why it takes such careful consideration. And there's two factors here, really. One is that Jesus considered who he wanted, but considered who the Father wanted. So the Father's purpose came in line with His purpose, and together they worked to make decisions about who would be close. And be careful not to just arbitrarily get the people you like, because Judas Iscariot was in this group. And you also need a Judas in your life every now and then. And I have found in all my ministry experience, the ratio is accurate. One out of 12 is a Judas. And I've had enough Judases now to see the trend repeat itself through the years. I've been in ministry long enough, different countries, different groups of disciples. I've never not had a Judas. And so what do you do about that? Well, how you cannot be what you need to be without Judas. Judas is a necessity. And so there may be someone you choose knowing full well that they probably will betray you. But you still make a choice intelligently for that person to be part of your life because you know they may grow by it or that you might need that to balance your life out. So, and, and he says there that he sent him out preaching to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. And he names them specifically. Now, we do know not only did he appoint these, but within that group, he appointed another group of people, Peter, James, and John. And every once in a while, the fifth wheel, Andrew. But in most of the occasions, when he did something very important, very personal, very intimate, and, and very powerful, Mount of Transfiguration stuff, he only included three. And so he limited and he measured, he designated friends. And that is a way that you can deal with enemies. And I'm saying that everybody's your enemy, but you don't want enemies in your life. So be careful not to choose them. You say, well, Judas was an enemy. Yeah, he was, and Jesus knew exactly what he was. And so Jesus did not obviously want that, but that was the Father's choice. And he knew, the Father already knew the plan sovereignly from beginning, all that would happen and play out. So he needed to be there to fulfill the role of what the prophets called the son of perdition. That person of loss that would bring, it would be the catalyst for the crucifixion. And what if we didn't have the crucifixion? And of course we would be still in our sins. So that's very important. So there are mechanisms in the enemies. Enemies can help you. Ultimately, the devil and all enemies are going to cause you to be better, not worse. But in dealing with them on a day-to-day -day basis, we can follow the example of Jesus. Now, the next one I like, too. He dealt with enemies by ignoring words. Now, words 
Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That's not true, actually, unless you make some choices about words. It says here, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. That's busy. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. They decided Jesus was nuts, and that anybody that would work so hard that they can't eat, and there's so many people, that, that's crazy. That we know our boy, that's not our boy. He's nuts. And they went to take him by force. And these words were told to Jesus. You know what Jesus does about it? Absolutely nothing. He does nothing. He does not go outside. He totally ignores them. Later we're going to see them show up again. But in fact, it's so insignificant, the words, he is out of his mind, that it did not even phase Jesus. He ignored it entirely. And I think we can learn from that. When somebody says something, writes some words, says some things, or, or those, those comments that are laced with something that you just can read between the lines and you feel like, you know what they really mean. And women seem to be very discerning about that. Men are less discerning about that. Which is not in on me. It's just, honey, they just, just, it's just they're saying, no, you know, this is what they're saying. And they read, they see things between where the white is and there's no ink. There's words there written that they're reading. You know why they're doing this, right? Because this, 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 this. How, how do you know that? Like, how are you sure about that? Well, I just know. How can you know that? So, really, the best bet is to just ignore the words. Ignore them. If it's on social media, like I say, you can block that. You can erase the comment if you're in control over it. Or you can block it and no longer see it. You can defriend someone. You do whatever you want to do. Or you can just leave it there and just not care at all. In fact, Jesus not once ever defended himself from any words. They would say words all the time. He wouldn't defend himself. He would just switch the subject. He would all the time. They say, okay, if, if, I'll tell you what, I'll answer your question if you answer this question. It was always sleight of hand, verbally, that he would misdirect and they would be like, well, huh? I can't answer that. If we answer that, the people will stone us because they consider that John was a prophet. And we, we better just shut up. Okay, just shut up. We're not going to answer you. Well, then I won't answer you either. And he won the battle. He had a very cool technique about how to deal with enemies. And one of them is this. He, he by ignoring their words. So Jesus' own family turned against him here due to their inability to accept that he was indeed the Messiah and that he was operating as God's agent. They just couldn't because a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own family, Jesus said. So those he grew up with and had nurtured him as a baby declared that he was insane. And the only thing Jesus could really do with that is just disregard it. Jesus knew it wasn't true. Do you think Jesus was insane? No. Maybe by the world's standards. But Jesus was not uh, insecure about his mental state. He wasn't worried about, I don't know, maybe I'm going crazy. Maybe, I, I don't know. Father, help me. No, it would never happen. Jesus was absolutely stable and there were no issues or problems. And so I really believe that this was just him putting this in the scriptures so that we could read it and see, you know what, that's what I need to do when somebody speaks words like this. They say I'm nuts, they say I'm crazy, they say I'm out of my mind, and they actually publish it, quote unquote, he is out of his mind. It's written in the Bible forever, this accusation. Forever, for 2,000 years, people have been reading that they said out of his mind, which, by the way, don't think that you can just take Facebook and get rid of those things. It goes on the Internet. That's forever. The Internet is a forever place. It's just constantly growing, growing. Ask all these people. They're, man, they're going after people for things that were said five decades ago. They're going after people now. They're trying to take John Wayne's name off of an airport for something that he said decades ago. Oh, it's going to get worse. Just wait. Wait, my friends. You're going to see some of the craziest things happening. The world is going nuts. <sighs> All battles over words, contentions about words, disputes and arguments. Uh, Paul said, don't even entertain arguments. He told Timothy, don't even listen to arguments. Don't argue. If they are argumentative at all, walk away. 
What if we did that? What if every time somebody come up with an argument, we just say, okay, see you, bye. Just walk off. Wouldn't that be cool? That means you would never suffer from an argument. Just walk away. Put your fingers in your ears and la, 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 la. You know, if I came to you and every time I said something negative and, and you put your fingers in your ears and said, la, 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 eventually I am going to say, this guy's freaky. I'm not ever going to talk to them again. And whereby you would applaud. Thank you very much. So just ignore the words. And I think this is a display of exactly what we should do when the enemy speaks words against us. Ignore the words. The words of a friend are faithful wounds, but someone not for you will speak hurtful and destructive words. There's a time someone's going to say something you don't like, but the Bible says the wounds of a friend are faithful. Sometimes people are going to have to be honest with you and speak the truth in love, and it's going to make you very unhappy. You know those kind of things they tell you that make you fold your arms? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can tell. You ever tell somebody something and immediately you feel that coldness because you know they don't like what you're saying. So really, we covered that when we talked about Jethro and his relationship with Moses and the nature of godly advice and how it works. Make sure that you have enough connection with them to speak into their life. Don't just walk up to anybody and start speaking into their life. I'm learning golf right now, and I found that all golfers want to teach you. And whatever you've learned, it's wrong. Everything, you finally get this thing, and if you show any other golfer, they're like, no, 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 not like that. You're holding it wrong. You need to do that. And you get retaught a dozen times. So finally, I've just thrown everybody out. I got one YouTube guy I really like. He's one of the top PGA Tour winners, a champion. He's amazing. He's a born-again, spirit-filled Christian. Great guy. Great teacher. I'm just going with it. He's Bible to me now. He's golf scripture to me. I'm going to stick with him and because everybody's got this little angle and this little thing and I just smile. Sometimes you just have to ignore words of counsel, ignore these things. So anyway, we go on to the next one. Jesus dealt with enemies by teaching truth. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. And this is really interesting that these people, they made a road trip just to criticize Jesus. I mean, they came just to declare that Jesus is full of Satan. You're full of the devil. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. They, they came to say this. And Jesus could have done many things. This is just another way that he dealt with people. You understand? At one time, we see that he just withdrew from people wanting to kill him. We see him ignoring words. All these things. You see all these patterns that are here. But in this case, Jesus called them over. There is a time that we will know we need to discuss what you think is wrong. Obviously, they were wrong. And so out of love and concern for them, Jesus took a chance and reasoned with them and said, look, come here, guys. Let's have a talk. I just want to reason with you. Something very simple here. How can Satan drive out Satan? If I'm the devil and I'm driving out the devil, how does that work? You know, he's just reasoning with them. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. So therefore, plainly, you can see I am not Beelzebub. But of course, they're not going to listen to him because they have this, this mindset and they're angry. And it goes on and says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven. Now he's warning them. All their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Wow. I can't help but think in that moment, the weight of the words that he spoke, even a Pharisee had to feel it. 
because their, their eternal soul was in jeopardy in that moment. And although they didn't like Jesus and did not accept who he was, I'm sure that the mercy of the Father caused conviction to come through such a degree that they started watching exactly how they worded things. In other words... Sometimes when someone tells you something that is wrong, you will be required to rebuke them for it and explain why they are wrong and why their assumptions are incorrect and tell them you better be very careful in what you're doing because if you even do it out of ignorance, you will still be guilty of hurting someone and it will be held to your account by God in heaven. And there are times I've had to do that with people. People speaking bad things, saying bad things. I had one guy slandering me all over town in Acapulco where we lived. He did some things and, and there's some issues came up and we had an argument. He was telling everybody these things. And so I had a meeting with him where we talked and I rebuked him. And we got, actually, it got bad. We got, it got bad to where we were going to physically fight. And I was actually stupidly about to fight him which is, I was younger, okay, I was only 25 years old, give me a break, it was a quarter of a century ago, I'm not there anymore, believe me, and so I, I, I just, finally, we just stormed off away from each other, and I felt so convicted that I had argued with him, and then, but later, the rebuke, he started thinking about it, he came back to the church, right before the service started, and he said, can I talk to you? And I went to him, and we went in a little storage room where we used to keep the sound equipment locked up, and we closed the door privately, and he started crying. When he started crying, I started crying. And we just hugged. And he said, let's just, just forget all this. I love you, brother. And he says, I love you too, Pastor. I'm so sorry that this happened. I said, well, you know what? It's over. It's over. So in that case, a rebuke, it worked. Now, these guys don't listen to Jesus they're not going to follow that. But there are times you will know in your heart you need to straighten it out. And there are other times and you will not. There's times you ignore it, and there's times you might have to tell them that they're walking on thin ice. So the enemy is always coming up against us, and there will be people who speak evil of us, and we can ignore it most of the time, but there will be these moments where we're going to have to deal with it. Let's go to the next one. Number seven, the last one. Uh, he dealt with enemies by declaring allegiance to the kingdom. Now, categorically, you're either in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. There's no fence riding. And so Jesus even said it. You're not far from the kingdom, he said to the scribe. He didn't say you're in the kingdom. He's on, you're on your way, but you're not far, but you're not in. And Jesus made it very clear to the disciple, there are those on the outside and there are those on the inside. You're on the inside, they're on the outside. And Jesus spoke to people always in those two categories. He addressed everyone as either outside or inside. He went to such extremes that he referred to their father as the devil and that his father was God. And he spoke to his disciples saying, your heavenly father this, your heavenly father that. But when he spoke to people on the outside, not in the kingdom, he said, your father is Lucifer. He was very adamant about keeping those, that division. You're either in or out. There's no gray area. You do or you don't. And so in declaring his allegiances with people, and the scary thing is, watch what it says here, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Now, remember, they were just there not long ago, and they were making the accusation that he was out of his mind. This is the same context, same chapter. Jesus is moving along. They don't give up. They finally are still pursuing him. They arrive standing outside because they were not allowed in. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Certainly that must be important to you. Certainly if your mother, because think of it from their perspective, I'm sure they valued their family members above all people. And if it's mom and it's my brothers, my sisters, my family, they outweigh and are more important than anybody else in the whole world. Certainly more important than these these people who you're not blood related to. So they assumed, even inside the house, they assumed that Jesus would certainly say, oh, I'm sorry, guys, uh, you wait, I need to take care of this priority. But he does something quite surprising. He looks at them and he says, 
Um, you, you know, he asked the question, who are my mother and my brothers? Because they just said, your mother and your brothers are outside. Well, yeah, who are my mother and my brothers? I'm sure nobody answered at that moment, except for some guy pointing outside. Um, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Wow. So he declared an allegiance to the people of the kingdom, not blood relatives. In fact, he had a lot to say about this issue, and they are some of the most problematic passages in the Bible. I'll read them to you. Mark 10, 28, then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one has left home, brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. He says also in the next passage, Matthew 10, 34, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Remember the definition of an enemy, someone who's opposed to you. In my home, in the beginning, my mother was opposed to me going to the mission field. My, my in-laws both were opposed to letting their daughter go to the mission field. Not just opposed, they threatened lawsuit and said, over our dead bodies, will you take our daughter to the mission field? They absolutely were our enemies at that time. Why? Because that's the definition of an enemy. They were, they were going to take legal action to stop us from doing what God called us to do. So we had to declare allegiance. We had to differentiate. We had to break away from them. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So here we see that Jesus dealt with enemies and problems, even if those things from his own home. In fact, they were. They came to commit him to a mental institute. They came to take him by force thereby stopping his ministry from going forward because they declared, and I quote, he is out of his mind. So they were in opposition to Jesus. Jesus had to declare and draw a line and say they're non-kingdom people right now. Later on, they came to their senses. Later on, his brother James does get saved. It took death, burial, and resurrection for him to believe, but he does get saved and becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. So he was a leader and trusted. So things change later. But for moments when people are in opposition, you're going to have to stand your ground in Christ and say, I'm sorry, this is my allegiance. My allegiance is to the people fulfilling the purposes of God. If it's in my church, if it's in my ministry group, if it's, if it's, me, if it's just me and my family, if it's just me and my husband, me and my wife, and we're doing this, we're going to live by the standards we believe that God is telling us. And therefore, even if you are my family, I'm going to have to put you across that line for now. Until you stop opposing me, until you stop fighting me, I am going to declare allegiance to the people of the kingdom above family. And I know this is disturbing, but... I only know from experience because I've had to do it. But I also know from experience that all of those people were reconciled to me later. And I have lived uh, many fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters, all and sons that want me to call them daddy, and all these people around the world. I don't mind when it's God, but God does this. And then we see all of these. It's interesting, that whole pattern. Let's look at the summation of all of them together. Dealing with enemies, seven ways Jesus dealt with enemies. Number one, by intelligent demonstration. Just live the holy life. Live Christian life. Live it in front of everybody. Take the guy with the withered hand, put him in front of everybody, and heal him on the Sabbath. Just go ahead and do the thing that you know is going to upset people, because they're going to get upset anyway. They're already decided to be your enemy. So just tap dance for Jesus in front of them. 
I love Jesus. And they're going to get angry at you, but whatever. But then they might want to kill you. So at that point, when the death sentence comes on you, you're going to have to withdraw from their threats. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He dealt with his enemies by compartmentalizing people. He categorized people very carefully into groups. Get the boat ready because this crowd is going to smash me. And you and I will get in the boat and separate from them, which he did. He often, in fact, was in boats, teaching from boats, so that the crowds could not grab him. Designating friends. He did that by clearly delineating who were his and who were not. He would be able to keep the enemies at arm's reach and have them in their own categories. So he designated his 12, and he did that not just on a whim. He did it carefully, just like we need to do it. Uh, finally, by ignoring words. Don't listen. Just don't listen to it. If it's negative, don't listen to it. Put the negative thoughts, ideas, and just put it out. Just stay positive. Don't, don't entertain negative words. Number six, by teaching truth. Just teach, tell them. Sometimes you're going to have to explain to them. Look, you're in error. I'm explaining it to you. This is what you've misunderstood. Now they may absolutely reject you for having explained it. But you've done your part. You did your best. You may just need to move on. And number seven, by declaring allegiance to the kingdom. Your highest priority should be the kingdom of God. Above all things, you should find who around you is living the kingdom principles, who is living the will of the Father for their lives. That's the kind of people you want to be a part of. Because when you find them, they, in fact, will be what helps you to live your life in the kingdom. Because we are one body, many members working together in tandem, one with another, in conjunction, to see the purposes of God played out in the house of God here in the church, here at Antioch, and around the world. Amen? So that's my message for tonight. Why don't we stand up? I want us to pray.